welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In late September, the regulator of America's electricity markets, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, took the unusual step of convening a conference at which it and representatives from the electricity industry considered putting a price on carbon dioxide emissions. The meeting came as competitive wholesale electricity markets, which supply power for two-thirds of Americans, have entered into a period of turmoil that, at the extreme, threatens to break those very markets apart, and which is based in the challenge of addressing climate change. On today's podcast, we'll explore the debate over carbon pricing in electricity markets, and we'll discuss the FERC's recent efforts to balance conflicting state and national climate agendas. My guest is Mike Borgatti, Vice President for RTO Services and Regulatory Affairs at Gable Associates, an energy and public utility consultancy. Mike advises clients from nearly every sector of the energy industry that participate in the nation's electricity markets, and he has been at the forefront of efforts to explore carbon pricing in the world's largest power market, PJM Interconnection. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. Mike, before we begin, and in the spirit of transparency, I'd like it to be known that in addition to hosting this podcast with the Climate Center, I also work with you and Gable Associates in a role that is related to the energy markets that we'll be discussing today. So that said, Mike, I wonder if you could get us started uh, by telling us about your work with electricity markets and on carbon pricing in particular. Absolutely. Be glad to. Um, so... It, there are these kind of crazy constructs out there that, you know, frankly, when I started in the industry, I don't know, about 12 years ago at this point, when I was just sort of a young buck kind of getting out of law school and starting at the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, I learned that there are these giant regional organizations of which PJM Interconnection is one of them that are uh, private entities that are sort of supposed to act uh, independently to dispatch and manage the power grid in uh, regional uh, markets throughout uh, a large territory of the United States. PGM itself is huge. It uh, extends for all or part of 13 states between Michigan uh, in the north, sort of down south to North Carolina, and then east back to the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York border. Uh, inside of that footprint, there are about 1,300 power plants and 180,000 uh, miles of transmission lines that PJM is managing and administering every day. The power markets that they're running are actually these big competitive constructs where they're attempting to take sort of offers to sell energy from power plants and match them with bids from load serving entities to buy power in order to serve their demands. So, and when they're doing this, they're using these kind of complex series of algorithms to stack up all of these power plants based upon the, uh, the cheapest or the lowest cost resources that they've got, all the way up to whatever the most expensive resource that they need is to serve that demand. So kind of think about this as trying to create sort of a commodity-like market, the same way that you would have you know, any type of commodity market out there where you, know, you would be buying or selling, for example, pork bellies or frozen orange juice concentrate. Really all a power plant is, is it's an electron factory that takes sort of fuel of one kind. Maybe it's coal, maybe it's natural gas, maybe it's wind or offshore wind or sunshine and converts it into commodity electrons on the other side. And PJM is essentially taking and creating a market for those commodity electrons. I work within these constructs because they actually have kind of a crazy regulatory structure where the companies that are coming together to buy and sell in these markets 
actually have a say in the rules that govern their behavior. You can kind of think about it as sort of the inmates here run the asylum, that literally the folks that are transacting get to sort of decide whether the rules that will govern them uh, are, at least in their opinion, just and reasonable. And once, you know, they come up with that set of rules, they propose them down to FERC and FERC will take a look and decide whether or not they agree with it. And ultimately, that's kind of how these markets go down the road. Well, fast forward to a couple of years ago, and uh, we had a number of clients who were uh, considering uh, the effect that, P uh, that New Jersey rejoining the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative might have on, uh, on these markets and on their positions. So Reggie is a multi-state construct, it's different from PJM, where a number of states have gotten together and decided that they are going to run essentially an auction for carbon credits. And so if you own a generation asset in one of the states that has, uh, is a participant in the Reggie construct, you've got to go out and essentially purchase one uh, credit for every ton of carbon that, uh, that you emit. Uh, here, what we see is sort of with New Jersey initially having left Reggie when uh, Governor Christie's administration came in. Uh, Murphy's comes uh, comes in thereafter and decides we're going to jump back into Reggie. That carbon cost would impact sort of the the production costs or the bids that different suppliers could uh, could offer their energy for in these markets. And so, sort of we were looking at carbon pricing as an option to effectively facilitate this kind of public policy and to make sure that the power prices the market was reflecting represented those carbon costs so that you know buyers were getting effectively what they're paying for, the benefit of these carbon policies and the incentive to sort of have the cleanest resources uh, be uh, prioritized here because they would be less expensive than dirtier things. Uh, and also so that you, you effectively saw the, uh, the positive effects of that policy. And so we've been at the forefront of having that conversation in PJM here for the last couple of years as we work through uh, potential rules to facilitate uh, that type of a paradigm. 25% of the United States greenhouse gas emissions come from the electric power sector. So the electricity industry is going to be crucial to efforts to address climate change. What efforts above and beyond the Reggie example that we just talked about uh, have been made to date to reduce emissions in the electricity sector? Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting, to be honest, is that uh, the energy sector, not just in PJM, but sort of nationally within the United States here, has been declining fairly significantly for the last decade or so. Um, for example, since 2005, um, the carbon emissions in PJM have decreased by 65%. And just looking at sort of a more recent snapshot in time, uh, EPA released some data earlier this year that said that in the first two quarters of 2020, carbon emissions were about 16% lower than they were the year before. Now, those should be pretty encouraging statistics, uh, but what's really driving that actually isn't uh, the sort of conventional types of policies that we would think about. To be honest, when we think about sort of things like state renewable portfolio standards or, uh, or REGI and, and carbon prices, uh, those to date have not necessarily been the most significant driver here. You know, the era where we see states adopting these really big RPS programs where they're targeting 50 or 100% renewable energy relatively near term are pretty new. Those have been cropping up in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, in the more longer term past, 
we've seen the RPS levels be a lot lower, sort of maybe 10, 20, 25% of the state's total energy need. So not quite enough to necessarily really move the needle in a big market like, uh, like PJM, for example. And Reggie has done a nice job in sort of creating a mechanism to price carbon, but the auction prices that folks have to pay for those credits have been pretty low historically and not necessarily enough to really move the market. So what's actually been driving that uh, that decline has been the national coal to gas transition, where we have been seeing a recent shift away from legacy coal burning assets, which are amongst the highest emitting resources that we've got in the country, and towards natural uh, gas-fired assets that, one, sort of have a lower carbon content in their fuel, and two, are frankly much more efficient uh, than these older assets that are out there. What's interesting is I think we're actually at sort of the other side of the apex of that trend. So the natural kind of economic transition that said uh, the these gas power plants that are cleaner happen to also be more lucrative, lucrative or profitable. And so investors were looking to, uh, frankly, deploy capital in those assets. You know, that sort of that trend is probably past its peak and we're on the declining side there. So it sounds like what you're saying here is that the carbon reductions that uh, would come from the transition, say, from coal to natural gas fire generation have already substantially played out. So to get further carbon reductions, it sounds like new types of changes will need to take place. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, are we going to see uh, further coal retirements and perhaps some additional gas come online? I think it's fair to say yes, but we're in sort of the waning phase of that trend. What's actually happening now is that we're seeing a combination of these uh, these big sort of state initiatives, but also significant commercial and industrial or private sector demand for renewable power being a key and perhaps primary driver actually for uh, renewable uh, resource deployment in PJM as part of sort of these companies' strategies to uh, reduce their overall carbon footprint. Um, if you look, about 50% of the Fortune 500 uh, companies have significant carbon reduction targets or renewable power procurement targets. Uh, and of the Fortune 100, uh, about 62% uh, of those, uh, those companies have stated sort of renewable or clean energy uh, initiatives at sort of the corporate level here. You know, we used to be talking about this as kind of, the, I would say, the more nouveau companies, you know, Google and Facebook and, and companies like that sort of taking a vested interest here as, uh, as part of their overall profile to, to reduce their emissions footprint. Uh, that trend has expanded into more sort of conventional firms like the Walmarts and Goldman Sachs and things like that, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily see as being perhaps, uh, you know, these, these more modern entities. And that's being a key driver here of what's to come in the future. Uh, we would expect certainly uh, that to be a big driver for the, the interest here in, in achieving that. And I think will be a, a, a you know, a big uh, component of how we get to a lower energy future going forward. So as you said, the low cost of natural gas has been key to carbon emissions reductions to date. Also, private industry has taken a lead in demanding clean energy, and the states have led by implementing as well through uh, policies such as renewable portfolio standards. So let's talk more about the regulatory issues, as that's where we're going to be going today. So the electricity sector is regulated at two levels, by the states and the federal government, where the FERC is the regulator. 
uh, a number of states and the federal government appear to have diverging priorities for the electricity system, particularly relating to how they manage the climate impact of the system. Tell us how these priorities uh, have been falling out of alignment. Sure, and, and I certainly agree with that statement. So uh, the way that we regulate the energy industry, as you, I think, rightly pointed out here, is a what we would call sort of in a legal term, a collaborative or cooperative federalist construct, which means we can argue over where sort of the line of jurisdictional demarcation is. But it's clear that there are specific roles that are delegated to the states and other specific roles that are delegated to the federal government vis-a-vis -vis FERC, the agency that kind of implements those rules on the federal government's behalf. And so one thing that's important to push at, point out here is that anywhere where you have sort of a jurisdictional divide between one entities, for example, the state's jurisdiction and the federal government's jurisdiction, that's inherently tentious, right? That is, uh, that's a line that sort of folks are going to fight over. That's not unique to the energy industry here. That is just sort of a unique to America and the way that we, we run our system of government. With that being said, we have had cases where FERC has been more perhaps environmentally motivated in the past than it is today, in large part because it was fulfill, uh, fulfilling the policy mandate that you know the administration at the, uh, the presidential, senate, and sort of legislative levels was promulgating for it. A good example of that would be a clean power plan under the Obama administration. Uh, certainly, EPA was in charge of putting together the clean power plan and coming up with ways for states to reduce their emissions through kind of a national carbon reduction strategy. But FERC was a big player there in implementing that through just and reasonable rates with, uh, within an organization like PJM. What we have here today is, is at least under the uh, President Trump's administration, we don't necessarily have that same mandate coming out of D.C. And there are many states, and I would say a growing number of states, not just within PJM, but nationally, that are increasingly concerned and increasingly focused on trying to reduce their overall carbon footprints. And as you say, a big portion of that can come from the energy sector. And they're adopting local policies to try to achieve essentially uh, the, uh, the result that uh, perhaps uh, we're not implementing on the federal level. Where we run into tension here is that in these competitive markets like PJM, there's a concern that state incentive programs, for example, payments through RPS programs or other types of financial benefits, distort competition in the market. The way that we get these prices and the way we make sure that we have efficient outcomes is bringing sellers and buyers together to compete. Sellers should want to sell at the lowest price that they can in order to maximize the number of folks that buy from them. And certainly in that case, buyers should get the, uh, you know, the best or the most efficient outcome. That's kind of a baseline theory here. And lately, there's been a growing concern that some of the activities the states have been doing or some of the programs that they have been using to try and achieve these local goals can distort those competitive outcomes. And what we've seen is, uh, is FERC implementing a series of policies to try and protect or insulate the market from distortion from these different state activities. Now, some in our industry see that as sort of necessary to protect the competitive markets and price signals that investors use to decide, you know, which resources they want to invest in and not. Uh, I think on the state level, many states view that as uh, an obstruction or an offense to the public policies that they're trying to promulgate. And inherently, we're seeing as attention on things like carbon uh, uh, emissions and climate changes increases, 
you know, the level of activity and political attention, and I think, frankly, the, um, you know, the volume around uh, the concern over where this line of demarcation and sort of where, uh, whether or not FERC is preventing the states from achieving what they want to, is coming into greater and greater focus and, frankly, greater and greater conflict. And we're seeing that as a, a, a recent but persistent trend in a lot of these markets, but uh, most particularly in PJM recently. The way I've heard the situation characterized is that the FERC's actions are essentially neutralizing the state's efforts to pursue their own energy and a climate agendas. And, and that sounds like the root cause of the conflict we're seeing between the states, FERC, and the wholesale markets right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you think about, for example, renewable portfolio standards, you know, those are uh, instruments that have been around a long time to incentivize uh, folks to invest in renewable uh, technologies, renewable generation types. Um, they, they have been, you know, part of our energy landscape for a while when renewable uh, technologies were kind of in the nascent phase. They were still emerging technologies and they were designed, you know, to incentivize folks to invest in these types of resources. You know, folks argue that pot programs like that and, you know, more recently, for example, offshore wind and things uh, are, are creating a paradigm where, you know, maybe entities that uh, wouldn't have necessarily entered the market under kind of a pure competitive construct have a leg up over, over other uh, entities because they receive those types of subsidies. Uh, ZECs are a similar argument on the other side. Uh, those are incentives that some states have enacted to keep nuclear units from retiring. And we do see a similar sentiment where there's a tension there over whether or not that is sort of a mechanism to achieve these policies or whether or not, you know, it's ultimately distortive to uh, to these uh, these market designs. So I would agree with you. I think it kind of comes down to uh, this tension point around whether what FERC is doing uh, in its view to uh, to achieve competitive outcomes and to make sure that the markets are functioning properly. Uh, whether or not uh, in doing that, they're actually preventing the states from achieving their uh, their climate and energy goals at the local level. You know, Mike, I'd like to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You pointed out that PJM is a large organization with well over a thousand members, and that includes electricity generators of all stripes, fossil fuel generators, clean energy generators, et cetera. So in addition to the jurisdictional tensions that you've talked about, I imagine there are tensions within the market itself, right, with all these generators making the rules in their own market. I imagine that makes it very difficult to come to any consensus on carbon pricing. What have you seen? <laughs> yeah, certainly, uh, that, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, at, at the onset here, we kind of talked about the inmates running the asylum regulatory example here. But remember, at the end of the day, these are folks that are competing with each other. And, you know, they are uh, are investing in, in very expensive long term projects. And, you know, the uh, they have a vested interest in, you know, maximizing their opportunities in the market. So, yeah, you do see attention. And at the end of the day, there are some real challenges there when you start to bring in these different types of commercial interests. And that's an important feature of the, the, the conversation here is you, you kind of have to acknowledge the realities of those economic differences or those, frankly, externalities that you see affecting the markets, focus, uh, you know, concerned about their pocketbooks and concerned about their their specific interests uh, as we kind of approach this question. Another important piece here, and, and I think this is something that we, we need to highlight and emphasize because it's really an important, uh, probably a critical component of, of this conversation. 
uh, certainly in PJM, but I think it's fair to say nationally as well, the states themselves aren't in agreement on what energy policies for their jurisdictions should look like either. You know, certainly, as I said previously, we, we, we do see, in my view, a growing number of states that are focused on, uh, you know, things like climate change and greenhouse gas reduction efforts. But that's not true for all of the states. And if you think about that, when we talk about these local policies, uh, that becomes an important driver here. PJM, for example, includes West Virginia and states like New Jersey and Delaware. And I think you can imagine uh, when you contemplate what the energy policy landscape for like a coal-centric state like West Virginia may be versus a New Jersey that is focused on, on things like offshore wind and has some very bold and aggressive uh, clean energy objectives, there's not a lot of overlap between those, those local policies. And that creates an important dichotomy here. It's actually at the center of kind of one of the biggest challenges that we were trying to address here with this carbon pricing initiative. And that's a phenomenon called leakage. When what leakage means is this is a term that you know economists would use to uh, describe what what we would say is a spillover effect. And what you can end up with is a case where if, for example, New Jersey enters Reggie and uh, puts a cost on generators that need to buy carbon reduction credits, that increases their cost of doing business. That makes them more expensive or less competitive. That's what the carbon price is, is intended to do. It's intended to sort of make the least emitting resources out there the most economic. So the, the system favors those resources when they're dispatched. Well, if a state like Pennsylvania or West Virginia doesn't adopt a carbon price, then you can end up in a case where uh, a cleaner, lower emitting resource in New Jersey is displaced because of that carbon price by a higher emitting resource in somewhere like Pennsylvania or West Virginia. And at the end of the day, New Jersey doesn't get the carbon reduction benefit that it's looking for because ultimately in this big centralized market like PJM, uh, their algorithms picked a dirtier unit that was cheaper for them. You can also think about leakage in the inverse that in New Jersey, New Jersey's constituents have decided that the carbon reduction benefits are worth the cost of, you know, uh, of uh, these credits and sort of that incremental effect on energy prices. But that's not the same in West Virginia. That group of constituencies hasn't made that choice yet. But in this dispatch, this sort of centralized dispatch universe, we can end up with a generator in New Jersey setting the price of power in West Virginia. And inherently there, you would end up with consumers in that jurisdiction actually paying for the carbon reduction policies that they had decided not to implement there. When we look at kind of a carbon pricing mechanism, this is actually, uh, and, and frankly, until and unless we get some kind of a national policy, a carbon pricing mechanism is designed to maximize the benefits of those two policy decisions so that both sets of constituents get the result they're looking for. At the end of the day, this is sort of a mechanism to uh, embrace those policy dis differences and end up with sort of the most efficient outcome out there. We sort of have to acknowledge from the, uh, from the beginning of this conversation that you know, these local differences matter, they're important, and now we can sort of take that and process that in a way that we can better represent those policy considerations within this regional construct. So Mike, as you've just said, uh, there's incredible political and economic complex, uh, complexity that we're dealing with here. And into the midst of all this uh, jumps the FERC. So on September 30th, which is just about two weeks ago, the FERC held its first ever technical conference on carbon pricing. 
Now, technical conferences at the FERC are significant because they generally signal that the commission is starting to contemplate action on an issue. So my question is, given all these pressures that have been building up, what has taken the FERC so long to actually formally look at the issue of carbon pricing? Yeah, so I, it's a great question, and you're absolutely right. This is, I'm hopeful anyway, uh, an important sort of signal of the policy direction that uh, that we would expect to see out of the FERC here going forward. Yeah, I think that the reason why they, they were able to wait so long is that they weren't experiencing the same level of attention and focus and frankly pressure from the states to be able to act on their own behalf. You know, as we talked about earlier, the states are very focused on kind of filling that void or vacuum that the federal government has vacated in terms of, uh, of advancing sort of climate change related or carbon reduction initiatives. And uh, policies that uh, the states have viewed as blocking or preventing them from achieving those objectives are driving them to look at much more extreme options like stopping participating in these types of constructs like PJM altogether, which has been something that's been discussed in a number of the PJM states, moving to sort of much more localized, uh, uh, sort of local regulatory structures uh, that uh, are potentially detrimental to the competitive markets that, that FERC has spent the better half of, of the last two decades sort of building up here. So why were they able to wait so long? Because there wasn't necessarily as much push from, uh, from the states or as much attention on these issues as there are now. Why did they need to jump in now? Is because we really are at sort of that type of an inflection point. And we see the states uh, here sort of saying that if they are not provided with an opportunity to try and facilitate these goals through uh, the FERC jurisdictional markets, then they will opt into other alternatives or pursue other alternatives to achieve that, that end state. Uh, so that pressure, I think, has driven them to have this conversation. And certainly carbon pricing is a really sort of tangible example here of where I think FERC can be an enabler of these policies. Uh, certainly lots of states are out there uh, ascribing a value to carbon or they're thinking about ascribing a value to carbon, whether it's through a Reggie type construct or Massachusetts, for example, that has its own sort of local specific one state type of Reggie that it's overlaying or some other mechanism altogether. Um, but uh, I think what they're recognizing now is that this is simply a conversation that uh, in reality is happening and they they can't ignore and now is their, uh, their opportunity to sort of begin to rationalize and recognize that uh, that this is something that they need to take seriously and is important to the sort of long-term sustainability of these markets. So you tuned into the, the conference. Uh, it was obviously virtual, given the situation we're all in right now. What were the highlights of FERC's technical conference? Yeah, it is, uh, it is crazy, this virtual universe that we're, li uh, we're living in today. I did tune in. Uh, a couple of, uh, of key takeaways that I had. One was the sort of unanimous support for carbon pricing in the FERC jurisdictional markets. And I wouldn't say that that was just PJM, that was writ large, that there was, uh, you know, from what I heard anyway, nearly unanimous support for, uh, for uh, these types of programs. And the panels were, you know, included a number of companies that were, I would say, you know, much more fossil fuel focused at the moment than perhaps uh, renewable focused. Certainly portfolios are changing and, and people are evolving with our times. But I think that was a big key takeaway is that, you know, there was uh, basically unanimous support for this type of a paradigm. 
The probably the biggest and uh, most important piece that I heard actually was uh, the first panel in the day, which was the legal panel, where they had a bunch of kind of legal scholars and uh, you know attorneys uh, opining on whether or not FERC has jurisdiction to implement a carbon price. Uh, there's been a lot of legal questions around that. Some have suggested that they don't have the ability to do that. It's not within their sort of conventional rate making authority. Uh, others have said they're not the right agency to do this, that regulating carbon is maybe something that's better left for the EPA. And there's been kind of lots of back and forth on that issue. But the legal panel that we saw at FERC was, again, I think, you know, united in their view that uh, FERC actually does have jurisdiction to implement these types of programs. You know, certainly they can do in a place like PJM, uh, like they've done in California ISO, which is a similar system out on the West Coast, uh, where they have uh, acknowledged that California has a carbon reduction public policy objective and that California is proposing a carbon pricing or proposed a carbon pricing mechanism to facilitate that. I think the attorney said that that was, uh, was something that they could certainly do. But they also actually said that if uh, FERC was concerned that this sort of patchwork of local policies affected uh, the rates uh, that are subject to their jurisdiction, that they actually probably had the legal authority to implement something like this on their own. Uh, and that to me, I thought was, was a striking and an important uh, piece of the conversation to see you know, that in addition to the industry being united, that this was something that they were supportive of, uh, that uh, you know, the, uh, the folks on the legal side were confident that this is something that PJM and FERC could achieve if it wanted to. Well, it's really interesting that you bring up the issue of should and can the FERC regulate carbon dioxide emissions. I think it's it's a good moment here just to point out that the FERC very much is an economic regulator. It is not a environmental regulator as the EPA is. And one of the other justifications I have heard um, uh, that would you know allow FERC potentially to uh, regulate carbon dioxide emissions is is more of an economic one, and that's that uh, carbon dioxide emissions do have a monetary impact. Uh, maybe not on the generators that, that produce electricity, but on a larger scale, societally, somebody pays for the pollution in health impacts, whatever it may be. And that without taking those impacts into account, the markets actually fail to reflect the true costs of burning fossil fuels and electricity generation. Was there any discussion about this reasoning or this justification for the FERC uh, to to uh, regulate carbon at the conference. Yeah, so th there was discussion on that, and I think that's actually another important takeaway. So I'm I'm very glad you asked that question. Is that we actually embed within power prices today uh, a cost related to all sorts of different kinds of emissions. For example, there have been uh, uh, costs uh, that generators have included in their offers for uh, nitrogen oxide and, uh, and SO2 emissions uh, for years. And frankly, there's actually a, a paradigm that allows generators to include a carbon price today uh, in their, uh, their markets. So when we, we kind of talk about whether or not FERC has the ability to recognize something other than just sort of the cost of the fuel that a generator needs to create electrons and the efficiency at which it turns that fuel into electrons. Aston answered 
for decades. We've been doing this for a long time. And I think that was an important piece of the conversation that, that bore out here and was reinforced. I think the next step is, okay, so if we know that we can do that now, if there are other mechanisms or are there other ways within FERC's power to make sure that we are recognizing those characteristics or the value of lower emitting resources in the most efficient way possible. I think that was the important part of the discussion that came out there, that yes, part of FERC's just and reasonable rate making authority can be to make sure that we are appropriately accounting for you know, the value we're ascribing to these types of emissions in the way that we're producing power prices out there. Now, what's important about, you know, your your point there on the value of the, the price of carbon and kind of what it is that that FERC does, my view, and I think we did hear some of this conversation is the actual price, that social cost of carbon concept, FERC's not necessarily an expert in that arena, right? I would say that FERC probably aren't the right folks to be out there deciding, you know, what the cost in, for example, human health or environmental uh, uh, degradation should be and how we should sort of quantify that. That's that's probably best left uh, either to the EPA and sort of a national construct or, or to states to make those decisions at the local level. But what they can absolutely do is say that when one of those entities has decided that this is the value we're going to ascribe to carbon, they can create a mechanism to make sure that that is represented in power prices and in dispatch. And I think that's what really clearly came out. So the state says to them, I think the power, the price of carbon is 20 bucks. It's a social cost of carbon. It's the regic clearing price. That's all well and good. FERC doesn't need to necessarily weigh in on whether that's the right value to ascribe or not. That's for the agencies that are expert there. But they absolutely are in a position, at least from what I heard on those panels, to be able to say, okay, how are we going to make sure that that value is properly reflected in our power prices? And I think that was a very important acknowledgement here that we uh, we heard at the technical conference. So, so based upon what you did here, do you see the FERC on the path to regulating carbon? I do. And look, this is a, a bigger conversation. And I think that, that you know, where we are in PJM here is that the RTOs and ISOs themselves are probably limited in what they can do unilaterally, absent there being a clear policy mandate from their states. You know, some of the states in PJM, for example, saying, yes, PJM, we want you to help us facilitate our public policies through these types of mechanisms. But, you know, we heard Chairman Chatterjee even say after the technical conference that, look, you know, FERC's engagement in this area is uh, something that uh, they likely need to take more seriously, uh, regardless of, you know, how the politics in Washington may change, for example, in November when we have our, our next election cycle here. Uh, so I do think that, uh, that there's an acknowledgement that, uh, that there, is, there needs to be better collaboration, better representation of these policies through the FERC organized markets here. I, I'm not sort of naive enough or, or you know, perhaps uh, 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 I, I, I don't refuse to acknowledge the notion that, like, this is a really hard thing to do and it's complicated. We're probably at the very beginning of a conversation. It's going to take some time to work itself out. Uh, but, yes, I do think that we sort of started upon a, uh, a pathway uh, where we can uh, think about ways to, to allow FERC to uh, better reflect these types of prices in their markets. So uh, let's say that FERC doesn't act on carbon pricing, okay? Let's just say that that doesn't happen for a moment. Um, will the states continue with their efforts, and will this jurisdictional tug of war continue so that 
we may see some states, as they have threatened so far uh, to do, actually uh, move partly or wholly out of the uh, wholesale electricity markets. I, I think no question, right? I, I, that that to me is the the primary kind of root cause of why we're having that conversation now is that in some states, this is a priority item for those constituencies. And, you know, the government governors and, you know, regulators in those states are not going to sort of abandon those local policies simply because the federal government hasn't stepped in to facilitate them. And they're going to take whatever actions they think are prudent to facilitate those policy objectives at the end of the day. Um, and I think that uh, if there sort of isn't an effort uh, at the national level to uh, to attempt to embrace some of these goals, you'll just see an increasing attention on, on those types of local solutions, even if they lead to the types of outcomes that you suggested that perhaps, you know, might have been seen as extreme in the not too distant past. What I also think is important, though, and I'm hopeful that kind of becomes a bigger part of the conversation here is the, the states can do a lot to regulate in this arena, and they can do a lot to influence the types of resources that get built, whether they be lower carbon emitting resources or certain types, whether it's wind or solar or whatever. Um, but they can't necessarily do everything that they want to in this space on their own. And the best example of this, I think, in PJM anyway, is Washington, D.C. Uh, the district has 100 percent renewable energy uh, policy in place now, where they're trying to very quickly uh, transition to 100% clean energy type of environment. Well, there's actually no generation within the district today. There's not a single generator that PGM dispatches there. Hmm. And even if they were as efficient as possible with all of the space that they have in Washington, D.C., there's just simply not enough land out there for them to achieve that objective. So if they really do want to get there, they're actually going to need some type of regional or national structure to achieve that objective. The, we're, we're frankly, if we're going to sort of push in this, this direction, the reality of it is embracing something like carbon pricing or a similar mechanism on a regional level eventually becomes necessary to achieve these types of goals. So I'm hopeful that what we see is, is sort of a pushback up towards FERC and a recognition that, yes, the states may need to take more significant action to achieve what they're looking for, but also a recognition that the pathway to the ultimate goals that, that some of them are looking for really will be achieved through these types of regional constructs. So now we can have kind of a collaborative conversation with FERC that is leaned into the possibility of these types of practices and can begin to start to promulgate a policy to help the states achieve what they're trying to do now. You know, Mike, uh, there's one issue I want to bring in here. We're in an election cycle, and um, I want to bring up the issue of politics here for a moment, if I may. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, there has been growing concern in recent years that the FERC, which was always intended to regulate electricity markets free from political considerations, has in fact become politicized uh, and acted to advance policies favored by the current administration. Uh, the former FERC chairman, uh, Cheryl LaFleur, has said just as much here on this podcast in the past. And I also want to bring up something else. Recently, uh, the industry publication Utility Dive reported, and I quote, and this, this references the, uh, the recent uh, technical conference, that of the 30 panelists lined up for the technical conference, none represent renewable energy or consumer interests. 
and only one represents state interests. So on the face of it, it appears that the FERC may be most interested in hearing traditional energy industry viewpoints at this point. What do you think is going on here? Are we seeing some politicization? And I guess the, the real ultimate question here is, does what the FERC uh, ends up doing depend upon who is in power in Congress and in the White House? Yeah, so um, certainly to the, the last point, yes. <clears throat> and uh, as we talked about a little bit earlier on in the podcast, um, there have been th these types of agencies respond to and implement the policies that are dictated to them, right? So we talked about the Clean Power Plan, where FERC was sort of an enabler of that broader policy uh, objective that was promulgated by, uh, at the time, the Obama administration. And so absolutely, politics does matter here. And I think uh, that's an important key piece here. But, you know, for FERC to effectively regulate in this jurisdiction, I don't think that they can ignore what's happening at the state level anymore. And there needs to be a recognition that the uh, states that are advancing these types of policies are, uh, you know, are real. It's a growing chorus of voices that are are focusing on this, and I think increasingly so, uh, we're going to see uh, more attention at the local level put on uh, ensuring that uh, that there are opportunities to facilitate those policies as quickly as possible. And, and I want to add here also to, uh, to, to give the whole perspective. FERC has every interest in maintaining the wholesale electricity markets. It was instrumental in deregulation of electricity markets beginning in the 1990s. The markets are really its baby, so it doesn't want to see these markets fall apart, right? Oh, very much so, absolutely. And and they have a litany of policies, and frankly, you know, uh, Congress, uh, in, through the Federal Power Act and the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which was kind of the most recent sort of major national energy policy that we've seen, have focused on using these types of competitive markets uh, to regulate in, in the spaces under their jurisdiction. So yeah, you're exactly right. You know, these are are frankly hallmark organizations that lots of other countries, you know, Europe and China and other places have looked at as kind of gold standards for how to efficiently uh, use competitive markets to achieve uh, you know, really good outcomes. I think they're a source of pride, but they're also a source of, of policy on the federal level. And that's a really important piece of this. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. I think the politicalization piece of this is, is really important because we can't ignore and we actually, frankly, need to embrace the serious consequences on, on all sides of what we're talking about here. You know, on one hand, you have states that are, uh, that view you know, climate change uh, and carbon emissions as, as a major threat to their constituents, whether it be for environmental reasons, human health reasons, or economic reasons, some combination thereof. And that's a serious matter. You know, there are, you know, certainly a lot of focus and a deep concern in, in many jurisdictions about that issue. But also when we're talking about, you know, adopting policies that might end in some generators retiring or deactivating, there's a very real local consequence there too. You know, I've got a client, for example, that has a generator located here in the United States who pays a uh, tax payment to the local community that is upwards of 80% of its municipal budget. And there are lots and lots of places around there where you see, you know, small towns in Appalachia or other places where these power plants have been around for decades and are the principal economic 
uh, opportunity in those regions. If they go away, that's very, very, very bad. And there's a very real human consequence in terms of the effect on the economy and prosperity in those regions. Those are absolutes. They are functions of this conversation. And I think when we politicize these types of issues here and we move this away from sort of having a conversation about how do we create efficient economic outcomes, we then exacerbate the challenges that are associated with, you know, with addressing these very serious consequences. That makes it harder for folks to believe in these outcomes and trust these institutions. And I think that overall, that's a bad thing. You know, in terms Michael, of the makeup of the panel. Oh, yeah. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, in terms of makeup of the panel, I would agree that that fossil generators were <laughs> well uh, represented. Uh, the states did talk a lot of, I'm sorry, excuse me, the, uh, the constituents that were on those panels did talk a lot about, you know, states' rights to regulate in this arena or not, but certainly they weren't as well represented as, uh, as one might expect. Uh, there was a bit of recalibration between the original announced lineup here and, and the folks that were on the panels trended towards some more renewable interests, but it certainly optically did uh, suggest that, you know, that there was uh, to some anyway, a, a view that there were more folks that were, um, uh, you know, more directly related to the fossil fuel industry represented than others. Whether that's right or wrong, again, I think optics here matter too. And that's a big piece of kind of the political conversation here and the politicization of the FERC. You know, you want to, whether or not intentional or otherwise, you want to make sure that you're appearing as, uh, you know, level-headed and even-handed as possible so that we can recognize and again, appreciate the types of uh, decisions as, as reasonable and trust that the institutions are carefully considering all of these different factors when they're gonna make decisions on something as important as this. So final question for you here. Let's say at some point we get a national carbon price, okay? National mm -hmm. uh, price on emissions of carbon. Uh, what does that do to all of these efforts at the FERC and uh, within the electricity markets? Does this make all become a, a, a moot point? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, I think that a national carbon price would be great. And I, I think most companies out there, and frankly, myself included, think that that would be the best outcome. You know, why we're talking about these sub-regional programs where we take a group of states uh, and, uh, and, you know, establish a carbon price in part of the energy market and maybe not others uh, is because we don't have that, that national carbon price. But what we see here is that, uh, you know, this is a very complex undertaking. And certainly there are lots of ways that the federal government might go ahead and implement some type of national program here that would build on uh, the foundation that we have started both with the conversation at FERC, but the work that's been happening at PGM, New York ISO and others to kind of figure out how do you actually do this? I could imagine cases where there could be different carbon prices in different regions because of the resource mix in perhaps one state or another that would, end up sort of creating potentially some of the same uh, issues that we see today where you have states, for example, in Reggie and some that aren't. Uh, so no, I think if the, if the federal government were to act in the space, that would be great. I think a national uh, policy would, uh, would be one of the, the best opportunities to kind of achieve these types of goals. Uh, but certainly uh, I see this as uh, uh, building on the work that we've done here so far, not necessarily in lieu of it. Mike, thanks for talking. Hey, my pleasure. Take care now. 
Today's guest has been Mike Borgatti, Vice President for RTO Services and Regulatory Affairs at Gable Associates. Visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website for more podcast episodes, blogs, and policy digests on today's most pressing energy and environmental policy topics. You can keep up with the latest from the center by subscribing to our Twitter feed. Our handle is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.